You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught in school and on corporate media. I'm Brandon, filling in for Isha, and today we have Mal Hyman, a professor of sociology from Coker College, to talk about his book, Burying the Lead, The Media and the JFK Assassination. We also touch on the overlapping interests of the media, the CIA, and the American foreign policy establishment. So as a professor of sociology, what first piqued your interest in Kennedy and uh, the assassination? I've been teaching 42 years in the public schools, five years in a medium security prison, and the last 30 years at uh, Coker College. And every time I, I talk about political assassinations, the day John Kennedy was killed, I could see that students were really interested, thoroughly depressed, and very curious. So it pushed me to read more about it. I kind of suspected there was a conspiracy and cover-up, but I hadn't read much on it. I took a class at, at UCLA as an undergrad on this, and there were a lot of questions, but I couldn't really pull it together, and I wasn't losing sleep over it. But you get in front of a, a class, and they're relying on you to sort out what's going on in the world. And So I started reading as much as I could by 75, and then uh, the House Select Committee on Assassinations was convening, and I even talked about it when I taught in the state prison. Everybody was interested. I was able to bring in some people who had researched it out of the L.A. area and starting to come in contact with some real critical thinkers. And I'd say by the time I was doing community organizing, I was running in people that were part of the Pentagon Papers, and they introduced me to. Tony Russo and Dan Ellsberg, and I became more critical about things. So I'd been reading about it, and when I started teaching at college, they let me teach a class on it. And the first time I taught, a student said, oh, I know Richardson Pryor, who headed the House Select Committee on Assassinations, is a congressman from North Carolina. Would you like to meet him? And I thought, oh, great opportunity. So I come into his office, University of North Carolina, Greensboro, and he greets me with, so so you're studying political science. Is there much science in political science? That's good. (laughs) This this guy has a good sense of humor. And I I said, you know, sometimes there is, but mostly no. They wouldn't be asking. You know, I read through your report and volume five, page 212, he got Dallas policemen running up the grassy knoll and somebody identifies themselves as a Secret Service, but Secret Service wasn't in Dealey Plaza at the time. What do you make of that? So he knew he was in for a discussion and was a really <laughs> great guy. You know, he's retired. He has nothing to lose. And we talked for a couple hours on it. And he confirmed all of my worst suspicions. Oh, it's just very sobering because he had no reason to, to BS me. And at the end of it, he says... I needed six more months. I needed $10 million more. And the military and the CIA destroyed files and didn't cooperate with my committee. And I commend you on what you're doing and keep up the good work. And he even wrote me one of those patrician notes about, you know, great meeting with you and keep me posted on things. And 
unfortunately passed away a couple of years later. Uh, by the time I'd really gotten up to speed on the case and would have enjoyed his tutelage. And I, I guess I, I should have gotten back to him sooner, but I didn't. And I had pulled together what was about 200 pages of a dissertation on media coverage because I figured the media drove the getaway car. They didn't cover this the way they needed to. And I sent material. I called up Oliver Stone while he was working on the movie. And his wife answers the phone. So how did you get the phone number? Like a friend of a friend. Listen, I just want to give your husband my dissertation <laughs> notes. And she got me the name of the researcher, Jane Rusconi, uh, a Yaley who was putting together a book of the movie and had a talk with Jane. She said, send it. You know, we probably don't have funding, you know, to add you as a consultant. You know, we'll give you credit. And, you know, we really appreciate the team effort on it. I thought, you know, whatever he can do with it. She calls me back a week later says, uh, we agree with you. We think it was a wider conspiracy, including elements of the government, the FBI, the CIA, and the military. And we've largely got what you've got here, but I owe you a favor. I appreciate your team effort on this. So before the movie came out, Jane came to Coca College in South Carolina, was part of a panel discussion. She talked about her research, the movie. It was part of a community education effort, and it, it promoted the movie a little bit. And I got a little bit more in line with the top researchers and the way they did business at the archives and a little more acclimated to the research community because I really wasn't connected to it. So I, I've stayed the course on this for a long time, and uh, it, it never got through as a dissertation because it was too hot to handle because this is a critique of mainstream political science. And if there was a coup d'etat and a change of policies, well, then they've been teaching the wrong thing for years, and they have been. And they at least should grant that Kennedy was coming of age politically and was a great threat to the status quo, uh, even though he started out uh, far more cautiously and gradually lost confidence in the CIA and the military. And I think the record is very clear on that. So I have stayed the course and uh, students have been part of raising questions and uh, they're still appalled at what happened in the 1960s. But once you get the case of John Kennedy understood, uh, it applies pretty closely to what happened to Martin Luther King. And you can easily say, see why they couldn't allow uh, even a Robert Kennedy to get into office because he would have reopened those investigations. And the FBI and the CIA and the military would have had a lot of things to answer for. And legitimacy of government would have been on the line. The mainstream media uh, had, since World War II, cooperated closely with the military and with the precursor of the CIA, the OSS. And this was seen as, as something that happened, a crisis in the midst of the Cold War. So you can see their cooperation pretty clearly. And all I do is it's a case study of what uh, was going on with the media during the crisis situation with the understanding that they were woven into the establishment. I really follow G. William Domhoff, who's a sociologist that writes on this, and before him, C. Wright Mills, 
That uh, close relationship with the media serving as, I don't know, I guess propagandists or, um, or mouthpieces for the official government line, I guess I've always sort of assumed that there's always been kind of an incestuous relationship between media outlets and institutions of power. But it sounds like from what you're saying that that relationship or connection got a lot more direct when World War II ramped up. Right. You know, you can go back to Winston Churchill and the British security coordination of intelligence and propaganda. And then Roosevelt assigned William Donovan, who ended up heading the OSS, and uh, to spearhead U.S. actions with uh, Fight for Freedom. And it pulled in people from Time Life, C.D. Jackson and Alan Dulles, headed the CIA later, and Walter Lippmann, Edward R. Murrow, Eric Severide, those type of guys. And, and it was seen as the effort of World War II to break the back of, uh, of fascism. And those efforts continued after the OSS uh, to the early CIA with propaganda operations being quite significant. The uh, Office of Policy Coordination after World War II at a psychological warfare uh, division that they claim controlled the number of newspapers and radio stations, theaters, uh, movie houses. And they were also part of Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty. Frank Wisner was the guy who was controlling it. Uh, the mighty Wurlitzer pulling out efforts to give our perspective during the Cold War and the CIA had major propaganda operations in 1948 in the Italian election as part of psych warfare. So, you know, lost in the discussion of Russian involvement in our election, which I think is the tip of the iceberg, because we don't, after the Citizens United case, we don't really know where money is sloshing in to 501c4s. But we've been doing this for a long time. And that ought to be you know, as a conservative take on things, there used to be a guy named Paul Harvey at the radio show, The Rest of the Story, and even he would talk about stuff like this. That's how uh, much we edit from American coverage of this, because we, we've been involving ourselves in foreign elections for a long time, not just coups and involving ourselves with media outlets and political parties in other places. The beta report during the Senator Church's investigation talked about relationships between the CIA and reporters being on the lines of 400 to 600 reporters having some relationship with the CIA. The seminal article is Rolling Stone by Carl Bernstein in 77. And he spells it out, everything from stringers and freelancers to uh, full-time spies, journalists, magazines. It was extensive. And uh, some were just debriefed because journalists could get behind the scenes. And then they, they talked to the CIA, sometimes debriefed over a dinner. Others would submit uh, propaganda as a news story. Uh, Congressman Otis Pike got into this with congressional hearings on the CIA and the media in 78. And they knew there was 
they called it black propaganda fallout or blowback where the stuff would come back and nobody would know where it came from lies unwittingly picked up by the american press and some of that went on too we still have not had declassified the names of those people who worked with cia back then if i'm going to go a little further James Angleton, who was chief of counterintelligence for the CIA, uh, ran a, a completely independent group of journalist operatives who did sensitive and, uh, and dangerous assignments. And the CIA even, even ran formal training programs to teach agents to be journalists. And the budget was large for CIA propaganda. Officially, we know in 78, the budget was about $250 million. So that was larger than the combined budgets of Reuters, AP, and UPI. So they not only co-opted journalists, they also ran their own effectively like journalism school in-house? They trained them. You know, wow. Say they, they at least gave them a formal training program. I don't know its budget or its length. But yeah, the cooperation was more extensive than I would have imagined. And you know, Dan Ellsberg and Tony Russo were good sources for me. I did some graduate work at UC Riverside with a, a fellow who worked with them named Mel Gertov and ran his campaign for Congress in 84. And that's how I came in, in contact with those guys. And they're absolutely fascinating and uh, an education in and of themselves to, to get up to speed on some of these things, and they've, they've introduced me to some other people. And it, it let me ask a different set of questions on foreign policy. I did meet with a fellow named Locke Johnson, who was the University of Georgia professor, who worked with Senator Church's committee. And I asked him, was it really 400 to 600 reporters that had a relationship with the CIA of one sort or another? And he said, at least that many. Now, that was an How did they record. cultivate those relationships? Well, I think some was patriotism during the Cold War. Uh, some was opportunism. So I think it's the spectrum. And it evolved from some of what was going on during World War II in that some media outlets had close relationships. CBS was, was one of them. Time Life was one of them. But NBC had close relationships, too, and were involved in the NBC white paper to smear Jim Garrison. As Garrison started asking very critical and revealing set of questions about government involvement, and was stonewalled by the IRS, the CIA, the FBI. He couldn't get cooperation to follow up what he was doing. Uh, NBC was part of that. Jager Hoover also had strong relationships with the media. Uh, again, similar sources, Time, Life, Fortune, Newsweek, Businessweek, Reader's Digest, U.S. News and World Report, and Look Magazine. So I think some of the reporters coming into that were part of that milieu. You can see it with the Grams and the Washington Post, later Newsweek. Uh, and all of this ties in with elements 
of the ruling elite in terms of, of business. Give you an idea, like the Graham family, Washington Post, the news with Catherine Graham. Um, Phil Graham built on the connections of his father-in-law, Eugene Graham, who uh, had chaired the Federal Reserve Board as well as the World Bank. And you had uh, CIA assets like Joseph Alsop, cousin to FDR, you know, and they, they would have these gatherings at the Graham family lunches where they bring in people from the State Department and the CIA and the Treasury Department for uh, luncheons. You know, so it was a network of people, and a lot of it was seen as doing the right thing and fighting the war against communism. Uh, there was a pervasive take at some of the grand parties that this is, is written about. It's not my research. You have uh, Joseph Alsop, who is a top syndicated columnist, former Secretary of State Dean Acheson, Alan Dulles, top CIA people. Desmond Fitzgerald, Tracy Barnes, uh, Richard Bissell, diplomats Chip Bowen and David Bruce, and reporters Arthur Kroc and Walter Lippmann and Cy Schultzberger. So it was a, a very powerful group. It was an informal networking of the elite, certainly more informal than, uh, you know, Council on Foreign Relations, which I see as very formal. And, you know, the Dulleses took their turns heading that elite. I, I think some of this came from going to the same colleges, elite colleges, and being in Skull and Bones. Uh, I, I think there were a range of cultural aspects to people joining and seeing it as, a, as, as a somewhat patriotic to be working on these things, although no doubt some were more skeptical and cynical about it. I can give you other takes. Let's say former New York Times editor, because the Times was closely involved in his writing about a Harrison Salisbury observed that many of these elite came from similar social circles and married into each other's families. Now, this again is C. Wright Mills and G. William Domhoff looking at these questions they were Yale and Harvard and Princeton lawyers, bankers, businessmen, and journalists. They were General Alder and Alan Dulles, Ben Wells, Walter Sullivan, James Angleton, who headed CIA with Dulles, John Oakes and his brother, Kim Roosevelt, the CIA men who pulled off the Mossadegh coup in Iran in 53, Wallace Carroll, Richard Helms, the list goes on. They stayed in each other's. Homes. They were friends. They drank together. They knew each other's secrets, you know, and, and these people were pulled in on, I would submit, very patriotic grounds during World War II. And a lot of those ties continued through the CIA, the State Department, and elites at every level in, in the U.S. And I think journalism was not the normal path, but, but some made it more of a career moving into being senior editors and and producers and owners. And at that point, they were woven into the Council on Foreign Relations and had relationships with the CIA. And all I did is trace through some of that and say that was a possibility for why they 
chose not to cover the contradictions in the assassination of John Kennedy. And it was the public that led the unraveling of the story, as it is with most social change in the United States. When the people lead, sometimes the leaders will follow. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like I, I know that at least back then, a lot of reporters were not from a particularly elite background, but the editors belonging to the same class as the foreign policy mandarins and the CEOs and white shoe lawyers like the Dulles brothers who ended up going into government. That, that all makes sense to me. Switching gears a little bit, I know that Kennedy's, I guess, contentious relationship with the CIA, my understanding is that the antipathy there started around the Bay of Pigs fiasco. Is that right? Yeah, that's how I read it too. And that's how most of the people who were, I guess, critical revisionist historians will look at it. And I think it's useful to to note that Kennedy was appalled and it was some sort of political epiphany afterward. And he realized how terrible the information was that the military and the CIA were, were part of this. And he didn't know what to do with the cold warriors that surrounded him. And he was, I think, open to that view. I mean, he was a, a work in progress. But just to focus on the CIA, he fires Dulles and General Bissell, who had a very bright and promising career in Yale and well-connected with the establishment, who was part of the Bay of Pigs, and also General Cabell. And many of your listeners may not know that General Cabell's brother, Earl, was the mayor of Dallas in 1963, and that the Cabell's dad had been the police chief there. We found from documents released last year that Earl Cabell, the brother of General Cabell, who was fired after the Bay of Pigs, Earl was a CIA asset at that time. And he set up the limousine route for the trip to Dallas. Uh, really? John, yes. Oh, wow. John Kennedy wanted to limit the CIA and there were all sorts of statements that uh, he, he wanted to shatter them into a thousand pieces. And he put his brother Robert in charge and, and put McCone in charge. They realized that they wouldn't be able to control the agency because it's need to know they're used to keeping secrets. And their loyalty, I would submit, was still to Alan Dulles. And they continued to meet with Dulles the top-level CIA people, even after Kennedy fired Dulles. Kennedy took away some of their foreign policy uh, maneuverability with Memorandums 55 and 57 to bring the military in so that they would be at least a cross-check on what the CIA was doing. And they knew that it was going to be very difficult to rein in the CIA Robert Kennedy actually uh, had his hand in some operations in order to get a feel for how they were run. And in stating that there might have been CIA involvement in the killing of President Kennedy, it certainly wasn't a formal CIA involvement because Kennedy appointed McCone, who was a moderate Republican businessman, 
to head the CIA so that he could have some idea of what they were doing. He knew the CIA was connected to the business elites. And let me give you a take from Arthur Kroc in the New York Times. This is front page 63 to give you an idea that Kennedy never really controlled them. Kroc, who was actually a friend of Kennedy, said, and this is on the front page of the Times, the CIA's growth was likened to a malignancy, uh, which very high official, somebody leaking information, was not sure even the White House could control any longer. If the U.S. experiences an attempt at a coup, it'll come from the CIA, not the Pentagon. The CIA represents a tremendous power and a total unaccountability to anyone. And that was the front page of the New York Times because the CIA wasn't seen as cooperating on what was happening in Vietnam. They weren't listening to the station chiefs. In fact, that was the State Department was not having control over the CIA in a range of places. So Kennedy knew he was fighting with the Cold Warriors and the CIA was working with the CIA on a number of operations. And while formally McCone was cooperating with him, he, he knew he wasn't really controlling the agency very well. Just to back up for a moment, one thing I wanted to clear up about the Bay of Pigs, I haven't done a close study of it or anything, but my impression was that the operation was always sort of set up to fail in order to, because Dulles wanted to force Kennedy's hand into a position where he would feel like he had to order air support in order that's to make my sure that the succeed. Well. Okay. And that's why and Kennedy was so angry when, uh, <laughs> at Dulles, because he, well, resented that they were trying to force his hand into starting a wider war. Is that right? Right. And actually, okay. he was assured by Dulles and military people that it would succeed without the air support. But Dulles and others thought that that air support would be forthcoming to protect the operation. And they were not acute, they were not accustomed to having an independent president that would actually stand up to him at times. And of course, the more he stood up to him, the less he trusted him. And, and it's very clear soon thereafter, he didn't trust the military either uh, and was surrounded by cold warriors. And even by replacing a number of them, he was still surrounded by even more cold warriors. And I, I think horrified at the Cuban Missile Crisis and an epiphany to basically break with the CIA and the military on foreign policy. I mean, he realized then that not only were they uh, giving him advice that was highly debatable and perhaps not wise, that it was actually very dangerous to follow their course. And he broke with, with both of them completely at that point. I don't know if you have run across Operation Northwoods. The name doesn't ring a bell to me. Okay, let me pull up my notes on this because you'll be surprised by it. And again, it's not my research. It was basically leaked. But this was a program from the Joint Chiefs of Staff in 1962 to have false flag operations that would be then blamed on the Cubans, including bombings in the United States. 
that would be blamed on Cuba that would provide a pretext for war. And this material has come out, and it was proposed by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and Kennedy rejected it. Uh, That's a psychotic plan. Wow. (laughs) Good Lord. Yes. Now, this is not uncommon in empires to have a cause of war. Let me read to you just to be more precise on it. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs at the time was General Lemnitzer, who proposed Operation Northwoods, covert strategy of false flag operations to justify U.S. invasion of Cuba. Plan recommended harassment plus deceptive actions to convince Cubans of imminent invasion. A series of well-coordinated incidents will be planned to take place in and around Guantanamo to give the appearance being done by a hostile Cuban force. I remember the main incident could be arranged in several forms. We could blow up a U.S. ship in Guantanamo Bay and blame Cuba. We could develop a communist Cuban terror campaign in Miami area, which Florida cities and even Washington were bombed. And this would provide a pretext. Kennedy rejected the plan. And and at that point, uh, I, I think Kennedy had a complete break with the military, had to deal with them and their rabid anti-communism during the Cuban Missile Crisis. In some of the mainstream media, they were worried that Kennedy was drifting away and not following military advice. Because soon after Kennedy rejects this Operation Northwoods, U.S. News and World Report prints, military men no longer call the tunes, make strategic decisions, choose weapons. In years past, mainly military men ran defense of the United States. Suddenly, all that has changed. In the Pentagon, military men say they are being forced to the sidelines by civilians. Their advice either ignored or not given proper hearing on many vital military areas. And Kennedy <laughs> restructured the military, muzzling many of the military brass and setting up his own inner circle uh, that he was trying to listen to as opposed to the Joint Chiefs. Yeah, I know, surprising when you go back over it. And Of course, this would mean that he was moving an independent path in foreign policy, which he did after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Kennedy moved to end nuclear testing at first above ground and the CIA uh, rank and file and the military fought him on that. They did it anyway. And I think that was when he started to reconsider foreign policy in Vietnam, foreign policy in in Latin America, and military spending. I mean, Kennedy at that point had his worst fears confirmed and was trying to rein it in and thus became a different type of leader and an independent leader who was still a supporter of corporate capitalism but running an independent path where he wanted to carve the excesses, he wanted to control the banks, 
He wanted to deal with the World Bank. He wanted to change foreign policy. He was likely to be reelected. That was a threat to many in the establishment, military, CIA, but probably more importantly, uh, their links to bankers and corporate America. And that's, that's, I think, the key. It wasn't just cold warriors and, and people that disagreed with Kennedy on policy. I think the missing link for, for some is the intimate links between the CIA and corporate America seen through the Dulleses that were always at the right. highest levels of corporate America. I mean, they were... Right. They both worked corporate- at what, Cromwell and Sullivan, I think? The- yes. Which had connections to German industrialists, both before, during, and after World War II, right? Yes, they were the ones that were helping cut the deals for corporate America with the rising Nazi threat. Absolutely. Right, and this is fundamentally a story of capital and, and capitalism, and, 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 and people who don't realize that are really excising what I think is, well, I mean, <laughs> central to it, as it is with everything. Absolutely. Sure, this is a case study. If you are an independent and you're popular with the people and you're coming up with some basic social programs and carving the rough edges off of capitalism and acting in in a a more prudent fashion when you're facing nuclear war, that that was unacceptable. It was a coup d'etat. You would have been regarded as a class traitor then. Right. Basically. Even (laughs) though capitalism was flourishing. Yeah. And Kennedy actually lowered the taxes on the wealthiest 1% because he felt it was too high at 90% and that capitalism would flourish better with a 77% tax rate for the wealthiest 1%. And he was probably right. I mean, if you're going to be a capitalist reformer, that's a better rate. And they still didn't want to have somebody take an independent path with foreign policy. Hey, this is Hamish McKenzie. I'm one of the founders of Substack, which is the platform that hosts the Historically podcast and newsletter. And Historically is funded purely through subscriptions. So people like you can go and pay some money to get the podcast and some subscriber-only episodes and subscriber-only newsletters. And that will keep Historically totally independent and uncompromised. It's historically.substack.com. The old saw that uh, history doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes is it just popped into my head just now because that reminded me of uh, what happened to Lula. <laughs> I mean, he was not hostile to the interests of capital. He tried his best to come up with a non-zero sum situation where everybody benefited. And they did. He pulled that off, but that still wasn't enough. I agree with you. The, uh, it, you know, it may take a while in some political contexts for the elite to connect with other political operatives and figure out a strategy. And I followed the rise of Lula. I had a professor that had done a Fulbright and, you know, in grad school in the eighties, couldn't stop talking about the guy. This is going to be the change in Brazil. And, you know, I I think, you know, it's a long story, but yeah, he, he was still too much of a threat. You know, I, I think we're, we're seeing that with what's going on in Venezuela. You know, Maduro's not a great threat to the ruling class, but they see him as vulnerable and they'd like to get rid of him. And they'll use any means necessary to do it. 
But yeah, absolutely. The Pink Tide was not radical in any sense. It was social democratic. But even social democracy is too much power changing hands, I suppose, for uh, the capitalist class. I've been wondering lately how much of their hostility is driven by greed and how much of it is just driven by, I don't know, resentment or something that they, I mean, it's not like the the capitalists are any poorer. It's almost like they're just outraged that people below them are feeling a little less immiserated. Like, like how dare they get, how dare they hold their heads up or something like that. Well, I I think they're, they're afraid of political openings that could galvanize into movement so that we had that potential in the 1960s and it was government by gunplay to end some of that to decapitate it and as people look in the assassination of martin luther king as was said to me by a fellow named jeff cohen who went on to set up fairness and accuracy in reporting as a great patriot that looked at the martin luther king assassination and He said the only way to believe the government story is to not read it. And he tried to get people in Los Angeles. He went around to the black churches. He went to speak to everyone. And he couldn't get the LA Times to cover it. He said the big story is the media ends up driving the getaway car on these assassinations. And if they were the lifeblood of the democracy and and the fourth estate and they were able to do their job, we'd be asking different questions on things. And I I think, you know, if you look at what King was doing in 68, you see he was a threat to the status quo far more than he was by 65 and 66. And I think that was that was part of what happened to him. I can't prove it easily because the files are still closed on the King assassination. But everybody that's read through this critically, including the King family, knows that the files need to be released and we need another investigation on this. And that was certainly what Richardson Pryor told me when I spoke with him back in 1990. So, uh, yeah, I, I think you're, you're right. A lot of this is the interests of corporate America. And I believe corporate America has splits. And that's why, you know, some support Democrats and some support Republicans, and most of them don't support an independent like Bernie Sanders. Right. He has a potential movement, uh, and it it could actually get to the presidency, and he could be an independent power. We know that Sanders in Europe is a moderate conservative. Well, let's say he's a moderate in Northern Europe. Uh, But here, he's, he's, I think, seen as a threat by many. And there's been a similar reaction to Corbyn in uh, the UK, which the the, the British media and and other powerful institutions controlled by capital have never stopped trying to sabotage him. And I think they've even, I I think they've also gone ahead and threatened a capital strike if he uh, becomes prime minister. Well, that's another one of their tactics. And they make it so that when you're in power, you just can't get basic things done or they'll come up with some system where they try to destabilize an economy so that a progressive can't get through even a Franklin Roosevelt type of agenda. Absolutely. You know, there are right. Many, Make the economy scream was, uh, I think, Nixon's phrase in Chile. Exactly. Right. Which they did. And Kissinger and the CIA were involved in that and not well understood. 
by by folks in our country about that very activist period. And I might say that Kennedy, after he was killed, instead of reining in the CIA, not very effectively, but he was trying to, um, and would have reined in the FBI because he probably would have fired Hoover or or had Hoover retire at standard retirement age, that the CIA and the FBI had very active periods uh, under Johnson, arguably the most active period for the CIA after that, and involvement of the FBI and the CIA and, and the military in COINTELPRO uh, to make sure that no movement, even though the movement was more liberal than socialist, to make sure no movement got too strong in the United States in the 1960s. I'm curious, to what extent was Kennedy's desire to rein in the CIA and, and push back against the Cold War consensus hampered by his and Bobby's own genuine commitment to anti-communism? He said, you know, a lot of nice things about Patrice Lumumba, and I, I think he thought that if America had been friendlier towards Lumumba, maybe Lumumba wouldn't have, you know, I guess reached out to the Soviet Union or accepted the USSR's assistance. But I've, I've always thought that that really kind of is glossing over the matter of ideology. I mean, Lumumba was a communist, and, you know, and, <laughs> and Kennedy was anti-communist, and I'm not sure how you bridge that divide. Or if I were Lumumba, I don't know that I would have ever trusted Imperial America, no matter how friendly. <laughs> right. And Kennedy, I mean, they really hadn't had any communications, so they were they were going on perceptions. I think Kennedy, you look at his speeches to Congress, was a stronger force for anti-colonialism than uh, a lot of folks might have imagined, and you can see it in his speeches to Congress and in his public statements that his his first visit to Vietnam, he gives a radio interview, and he says the fires of nationalism are ablaze, and our intervention on behalf of England's oil interests in Iran uh, are wrong, our interests in the Middle East. Uh, should be anti-colonial. He said in 56, the Afro-Asian revolution of nationalism, the revolt against colonialism, the determination of people to control their own national destiny, uh, is, in my opinion, the tragic failure of both Republican and Democratic administrations since World War II. And Kennedy declares to the Senate in 1959 that uh, Africa is going through a revolution and it's spreading like wildfire. Uh, it's no longer necessary to remain poor and forever in bondage. And I think this came from Kennedy's experience as an Irish Catholic, where he even tells Nehru one time that what happened in Ireland was worse than what happened in, in India. Well, let me get the quote for you. And this is to Nehru in January 62. I grew up in a community where people were hardly a generation away from colonial rule. Colonialism, to my immediate ancestors, was more sterile, impressive, and cruel than that of India. I think Kennedy was always open to another interpretation. I think he campaigned to win the presidency and knew that he could criticize Nixon and was opportunistic in the campaign and 
as he evolved in office, he he came to realize more of what was going on. You get the crash course where the CIA and military were taking the country. And he also saw after the Cuban revolution, where he makes the statement for the Alliance for Progress, those who make peaceful change impossible make violent revolution inevitable. And he moves to fund the sources of nonviolent change so that there can be uh, civil forces on the ground that were strengthening progressive forces in the churches, in the media, political parties, all of which is not going over well in Congress. It's not being funded well. He's way ahead of where the country is at, even though he's framed it as anti-communism. And it's not going over well with corporate elites that have investments in Latin America because they don't want to see fair elections. And that's when we start to see more priests being killed. That's actually gut check time for the Pope, realizing, you know, if there's Cuban type revolutions, the Catholics are going to be thrown out of country after country in Latin America. So there's a reevaluation in the church for liberation theology. And right. Kennedy did not succeed with the alliance for progress. He ultimately didn't get support throughout Latin America, but it was, I think, an effort. And I think during that effort, he saw what he was up against. Now, he, he was not a pacifist, and, and he was not willing to confront the military and CIA on everything. That's for sure. But I think he was, particularly after 62, he made his break. And he realized in Vietnam, in Latin America, in Indonesia, on uh, weapons of mass destruction, on military spending, that the country was headed in the wrong direction, and he wanted to change it. Still a capitalist, capitalist reformist, but even that was not tolerated and was feared by the powers that be, I would submit. What would he have had to do to bring the CIA to heel? How far would he have had to go? Like, how do you do that effectively? I mean, I know that he was never going to question the logic of capitalism itself, which is ultimately <laughs> the only way to stop all of this. But even just to rein in the CIA as one agency or institution in the, you know, the alphabet soup of different state surveillance apparatuses, like, how do you, uh, how do, you do that? What would he have had to do? I think he would have had to cut more deeply into the agency as Carter was starting to do beginning of his term in office. But that won't be enough either. You have to have a stronger head than McCone was. Right. Yeah. You know, that was, it seemed like an effort on the part of Kennedy to reach out to moderate Republicans, you know, to, to move in a more moderate direction. I mean, this is such a difficult job. And I think he guessed wrong with McCone. Uh, he still had his brother looking at the agency. He needed more people looking at it. And I think at best, uh, he would have done a better job neutralizing it. And one of the ways that policy unfolds is the politicization of intelligence. And that's down at the operational level. So that takes a while to impact. And because there's a former CIA officer, Joseph Smith, 
in his book, Portrait of a Cold Warrior, that talks about this. And this was done to ready the country for war in Iraq. It's called politicization of intelligence, and it can come from CIA, Defense Department, State Department. Uh, but, but usually they bring in the CIA. And Smith, and I read this in grad school, this uh, is, is part of a spate of books where people talk about this says the CIA uh, will give information to the State Department and Defense Department. And when they read enough alarming reports, we plan to spring the suggestion that we should support the colonel's plan to reduce Sukarno's power in Indonesia. It was a method of operation which became the basis of many of the political action adventures of the 60s and 70s. We made up the action programs ourselves after we'd collected enough intelligence to make them appear required by circumstance. Our activity in Indonesia in 57 and 58 was one instance. The most efficient way to handle ambassadors who demanded their rights as head of U.S. missions to be informed of CIA operational activities was to tell them plausible lies. So once you set the basis for certain uh, policy operations, well, then the State Department and Defense Department and ambassadors and elected officials are more likely to fall into line. And they just see it as politicization (laughs) of intelligence. You know, the documentary, Why We Fight, got into that. And I think that politicization of intelligence went on in Rumsfeld's Defense Department for the war in Iraq. Right. And I know that Cheney's office had a pretty uh, active hand in that. I think they did something called stovepiping, where he would use his institutional connections to like to reach down and scoop up raw intelligence that couldn't even like make it past the vetting, like the internal vetting where they scrub data inside the agency and then just sort of... Uh, he could just throw it around like he'd go on like Jay Leno or something and peddle crap about, oh, Iraq's looking for uranium, like knowing full well that he couldn't take that to Congress in like something the CIA letterhead. Even they were too iffy about the intel. They knew it was bad. But so he'd use other media outlets just to get the word out. And to, um, yeah, I, I've seen it. Something like I that. referred <laughs> to as cherry picking intelligence. Rumsfeld and Cheney were close allies. Uh, the movie Vice gets into that at a popular level, but they, they work closely together. And I, you have a number of retired colonels who worked in the military, and the, the Office of uh, Military Plans was that subgroup within the Defense Department that set the intelligence in in. Uh, the case of Iraq, it didn't come from the CIA, it came from the Defense Department itself. And the CIA under George Tenet went along with it. But yeah, weaponizing intelligence. And apparently that has been the norm for a while. And I think it's, it's something that Kennedy would have had a tough time controlling. He may not even have known that that was going on or might even have, might have just surmised it. Because it takes a while to figure out how these agencies work. And he was clearly changing policy on Vietnam. I think the revisionists have carried the day effectively. 
that he didn't know what to do at first and he followed advisors and then he started stalling and didn't expand nearly the way they wanted. So they saw that as a red flag. But after the Cuban Missile Crisis, he starts to move toward the strategy of pulling out of Vietnam. Now, he was a politico and realized that it would hurt him for re-election if he was seen as losing Vietnam during the Cold War, when the military right. and the CIA and all sorts of other political leaders thought it was necessary. So he's moving to pull out a thousand troops by the end of 63 and to pull out more if he's reelected. And you can see that in a number of his plans. And there are a number of senators, elected officials, uh, people in the state and defense department, people in his administration that go along with that. Probably the expert on it to look at the documents is John Newman, a major in military intelligence, uh, who is a critical researcher on this. And I basically borrow from what John came up with. I mean, he's, he's the researcher on it. I, you know, you look at these declassified files and it takes a long time to know how to read them. And John knew that. And, and I think his research is, is probably the best. And I think that's what convinced Oliver Stone of the, uh, the change in Ken- Kennedy's policy on Vietnam. And John has written about it, JFK and, and Vietnam. I think his is probably the, the seminal work on that. Uh, and Kennedy saw it as the wrong war, the wrong place, the wrong time, and just didn't think that he could get reelected in 64 if he moved very quickly in that regard. Of course, the powers that be saw that as, oh, my gosh, this guy's running an independent foreign policy. What else is he going to do? What other business interests is he going to affect? Because Kennedy was also looking at the banks and didn't think the banks were acting uh, in, in America's interest as well, which comes back we're, to your um, thesis of keep a close eye on, on business interests uh, and, and those in power. Was, were there any direct connections to um, the current crop of people in charge of the financial sector at the time? Were any of those holdovers from the, the guys who were in charge when the business plot was floated back when Roosevelt was president? Were those any of those the same people? You get a similar type, not those that, that tried that plot, but you get, and here's one that I overlooked for years that I'd like to share. Douglas Dillon, who was secretary of the, the treasury, he really was a, a cold warrior and had worked with the Eastern establishment. And also, the Treasury Department controlled the Secret Service that was right. criminally negligent in what they didn't do to protect Kennedy with all the death threats. The guy who headed that department was Douglas Dillon. Douglas Dillon was a close friend of David Rockefeller, and he was also close to the Dulleses. Don't know if you're aware of that. And I read The Devil's Chessboard a few years ago. Um, yeah, that's David Talbot. I'm sure you're from the, yeah. Um, and uh, gosh, that's terrifying. <laughs> that is just uh, far more, e- that guy was, well, those guys, those brothers are 
far more evil than even I anticipated. It's, it seems like they had a finger in, I don't know, everything bad that happened over like a 30 year period <laughs> anywhere. I've, I admit uh, to borrowing from David Talbot's book uh, at every point. I thought he did a terrific job uh, in looking at the role of the CIA. And I, I and, and in his book, and I lead this with, with a chapter in my book on Secret Service, yet Douglas Dillon, whose father joined the Dulles brothers in banking and trading with the Nazis. Allen and Foster Dulles were friends with C. Douglas Dillon and political allies. And Dillon, like Douglas, had served in the OSS and often disagreed with Kennedy on banking, trade, tax, and foreign policy. See, Douglas Dillon had been John Foster Dulles's ambassador to France from 53 to 57, and Foster convalesced at Dillon's home in 1959. Allen had vacationed with Dillon uh, in France. Uh, Dillon's chief counsel, Treasury Department, acting Secretary of Secret Service Gaspar D'Angelo Balin, had responsibility for, du- for the Dallas trip. Balin's wow. family had been friendly with Alan Dulles. I mean, you can go further. Balin, now Balin again, because I know this is like a Tol- Tolstoy novel with all the names. Balin <laughs> is the acting secretary of the Secret Service at the time when Kennedy is assassinated, where the Secret Service breaks their manual at like 20 different places. And I can get into that if you want. But an unusual name, Gaspar D'Angelo Balin's family had been friendly with Alan Dulles. And it also worked in the OSS with William Bundy and James Angleton, Bundy high-level Pentagon official and former CIA officer, and James Angleton heading the Secret Service uh, counterintelligence for the CIA. So... He's connected with all these people. That doesn't prove anything, of course. But for future researchers, it needs, I think, to be mentioned. You know, and just a side thought, like this just occurred to me that honestly, the Secret Service, I've I've never really understood why they have this reputation for being these elite kind of badass operators. It was what, like a couple of years ago, I think, that there was that big scandal where it came to light that like on like presidential trips to foreign countries, these guys were basically just being creepy sex tourists. What what a worthless institution. Yeah, I, I thought it's cleaned up their act considerably <laughs> since 63. But you're right. That did surface, I think, two, three years ago about what happened with Secret Service down in Venezuela. And goodness knows how prevalent that is. So I, I think there's a reputation that isn't maybe as well-founded. I also think these agencies go in cycles. Sometimes the CIA mm-hmm. is, is more pragmatic and controlled by Congress, and sometimes it isn't. Same thing with the FBI. I think what we but have it's a tactical matter. It's, it's, not about, uh, it's not really about institutional imperatives or like underlying interests. This is more of a small ball, kind of like how do we, how do we pursue our interests? That would be the distinction. That's a whole other question, but I I will make the point that they go in cycles. I don't think the CIA is acting in the interest of the general public in the United States. 
No. Um, but they, they can be run more rationally and moderately. And, and in that sense, I think they go through cycles. So I, I, I agree with your general point. And I think Secret Service, CIA, the FBI, and the military were all far less rational back then, far more ideological, uh, far more virulently anti-communist than folks might have imagined. And they actually thought that they were patriotic. The business community, I think, was far more cynical, but I think Mm -hmm. the operatives actually believed in the great threat of rising communism, uh, being anti-God and anti-religion and all that. Oh, wow. Okay. So you, they were true ideologues, the guys on the ground? I think so. That's, that's disturbing. <laughs> it reminds me a little bit of the, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember the guy's name, but some general, like shortly after 9-11, I think he, he was like giving classes or something at the Pentagon about how Islam is from the devil and I mean it's basically just, just fundamentalist Christian fire and brimstone apocalypticism and just you know, speaking of true believers and at the tip of the spear right it's a good observation and Kennedy did the same thing they were calling those generals they clearly weren't rational or moderate they'd lost credibility but when Kennedy was pulling them it was a red flag to all the other hardline anti-communist generals that Kennedy was changing course. And Kennedy did that. And even Arthur Schlesinger, the great historian who worked with Kennedy, said the Kennedy administration was always at war with the military and the CIA. So he was doing some of that too. And, you know, was never able to come close to controlling them, but was starting to pull back and rein them in. Uh, And it was tough to do was, a president that didn't come in with a big mandate and didn't have experience with State Department and Defense Department and CIA. How did the whole thing run? And they were tough enemies. And I think I think they could see he was likely to get reelected and they could see where he was going. This concludes part one of our interview with Mal Hyman. Our next episode will be the second and final part of the interview. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.